I would like you to turn to the book of Amos. 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 Go to Matthew, go back 10 books, and you've arrived at the minor prophet Amos. I'm sorry for the title minor prophets because in many people's minds, that means a lesser prophet, and they really are not. Uh, They are as important as what we call the major prophets. The reason they came to be known as the minor prophets is because... uh, they all were able to fit on one scroll. Each of the major prophets had their own scroll. I wish they had called them something else besides minor prophets. Uh, I suggest you read the minor prophets, if for no other reason, self-defense. You may go to heaven one of these days and you'll run into a guy whose name is Obadiah or Nahum And they'll say, say, did you read my book? And you'll say, no, I didn't have time. (laughs) And then they'll graciously remind you it took between 11 and 13 minutes to read the whole book or that it was only one chapter long. So uh, I suggest you uh, read the Minor Prophets. I'm in chapter 5 of the book of Amos, and I would like to read the first 15 chapter, uh, first 15 verses, and uh, uh, if you have it now when you can follow along, I'm reading from a New American Standard Version. Hear this word which I take up for you as a dirge, O house of Israel. She has fallen. She will not rise again, the virgin Israel. She lies neglected on her land. There is none to raise her up. For thus says the Lord God, the city which goes forth a thousand strong will have a hundred left, and the one that goes forth a hundred strong will have ten left to the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, seek me that you may live. You do not resort, but do not resort to Bethel, do not come to Gilgal, nor cross over Beersheba, for Gilgal will certainly go into captivity and Bethel will come to trouble. Seek the Lord that you may live, or he will break forth like a fire, O house of Joseph, and it will consume with none to quench it for Bethel. For those who turn justice into wormwood and cast righteousness down to the earth, He who made the Pleiades and the Orion and changes deep darkness into morning, who also darkens day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the land. Uh, The Lord Yahweh is his name. It is he who flashes forth with destruction upon the strong so that destruction comes upon the fortress. They hate him who reproves in the gate, and they abhor him who seeks, uh, who speaks with integrity. Therefore, because you impose heavy rent on the poor and extract a tribute of gain from them, though you have built houses of well-hewn stone, yet you will not live in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, yet you will not drink their wine. 
for I know your transgressions are many and your sins are great. You who distress the righteous and accept the bribes and turn aside the poor in the gate. Therefore, as such a time, the prudent person keeps silent, for it is an evil time. Seek good and not evil that you may live. And thus, may the Lord God of hosts be with you, just as you have said. Hate evil, love good, and establish justice in the gate. Perhaps the Lord God of hosts may be gracious to, to the remnant of Joseph. Would you pray with me, please? Our Father, these are strong words to a people who now are long past, from a prophet who didn't choose to be a prophet. Uh, and yet, Father, you called him out to speak to your people. And Father, we ask you today to encourage us and teach us and grow us through this passage now written in the 7th century B.C., and we pray, Father, that in the process of all of this, we will learn together and we will grow together, that we will be more in love with you and that we will be more in love with each other. And we will give you the praise for all of this. In Jesus' name, amen. I think there are times when we have experiences that impact us that... Uh, we remember for a long time. Some of you may know I pastored a church in Portland, Oregon for 30 years, Gateway Baptist Church. And uh, somewhere in the middle there, we decided to invite the entire community to our facility, and we called it the Harvest Festival. And so we would take the front parking lot, which uh, involved about a two-acre spot, and we covered it with bouncy houses and sliding houses and every conceivable blow-up thing you could find, and we got games of all kinds. We spent hundreds of dollars and gave prizes out to the people who won the games, and on and on it went on a Saturday all day long. One day I'm sitting in staff meeting. And there are seven of us, and uh, we're discussing the next uh, Harvest Festival and how to make it good. And somebody suggests we have a dunk tank. <laughs> we all thought it was a great idea. And then came the discussion of who would sit in the dunk tank. And suddenly, the 12 other eyes were looking at me. And I said, oh, wait a minute now. I have to be out there mingling with the people. And they said, you know, we've got guys that can do that. The rest of the staff can do that. The elders can do that. I said, yeah, but I need to make sure everything's running well. What if something breaks down? And they said, well, in all these years, nothing's broken down yet. And if it did, you probably wouldn't be the one to fix it. I said, yeah, but maybe somebody will want to be counseled. Maybe somebody will want to talk about the gospel. And they said, listen, we have had evangelism classes in this church for years. 
Everybody can share the gospel. And finally, I ran out of excuses. And the day came. I went to work in a pair of gym shorts and a t-shirt. And I watched them fill the dunk tank. And they told me they were filling it with warm water. They lied. <laughs> and for five hours, I was in that dunk tank. And every time it came down, I hit something, an arm or my head. And I kept thinking, I need to raise my feet so they don't hit the ground so hard. And I will never forget the dunk tank. I went into the next staff meeting and I said, I have a new rule, a, a new rule, no more dunk tanks. That, of course, didn't fly. And uh, in subsequent years, we all spent time in the dunk tank. Even my wife, Carolyn, spent time in the dunk tank. I'm telling you, it was a hard day. Several of the elders came several times. Every kid in the neighborhood came. And they put me in the water so many times. Some things impact us. And we have to remember that some things change us. In your outline, it says, does God change us? Does he change our lives? Change what we do, where we go, how we speak, who becomes our friends, how we treat other people. Remember that the goal of a relationship with God is to change the heart and the life of the individual. Let me talk a little bit about Bethel because Amos refers to Bethel three times. You remember Bethel, Genesis chapter 28 through Genesis chapter 35. Bethel was the place where... Uh, Jacob had this dream about a ladder that went to heaven. You would think it was so that man could reach God, but it wasn't. It was so that God could come to man. And uh, after that dream, Bethel became, it was named Bethel. Uh, remember, whenever you see the term El, it's God in the name. And in this case, it's the dwelling place of God. And Israel went on pilgrimages to Bethel. They went there to worship God. It became a holy place. He refers to the, the concept of uh, Gilgal. And remember, Gilgal was the place where the children of Israel came across the Jordan and landed and set up 12 stones, and it became a holy place. They would, they would pilgrimage to Gilgal. He refers to Beersheba, and Beersheba was the place where was the original dwelling place of Abraham, the father of Israel. And it became a holy place. That was the place where Abraham dug the well. And these places became holy places. And Amos is telling us that the people went to those places to meet with God. But what he tells us is that nothing happened. They were not changed when they went to meet God. Let me talk a little bit about Amos. He was not a prophet by trade. He was a shepherd and a fig pincher, a fig pincher. 
actually, just before harvest time, they had these guys that would go around and pinch the figs. And if a little sweet juice came out, they knew that the figs were ready to be harvested. And if a little sweet juice didn't come out, they knew that more oxygen would go in and it would, and it would, uh, it would ripen faster. There was a group of people called the Prophet School in, at this time in uh, Amos' life, and they, uh, he was not part of it. He claims he was not a prophet, nor the son of a prophet. He simply had a message from God, and he had to preach it. He preached during the rule of Jeroboam II in Israel, a horrible king. He preached during the rule of Uzziah in Judah. He was a contemporary of Isaiah. He, uh, he preached from uh, 767 to 753 B.C., and uh, the book was actually written, we believe, in 751 B.C. So he is addressing a people who are going to these important places to meet God and are not changed by God. He uses the phrase, thus saith the Lord, 41 times in his book. And his message to Israel is a funeral dirge to them, as he indicates in verse 1 of chapter 5. So let's take a look briefly at, first of all, the transformer. In this case, we are talking about God. And you'll see that it's talking about God uh, creating the, uh, the Pleiades and the Orion, two uh, important uh, uh, constellations. You'll see that he's talking about God making uh, daylight and darkness, and we'll come to all of that. I want you to understand the first thing Amos talks about in this passage is the sovereignty of God. I submit to you that the sovereignty of God is found in every book of the Bible. You cannot escape it. And one of the things that the, the Bible does is it connects this incredible doctrine of the sovereignty of God with the relationship of mankind to God. They are two very important things, and they go together. You might not think so. And that's what he does here. Uh, another perfect example is in Romans chapter 11. The Apostle Paul says, beginning in verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. God has wisdom and knowledge we cannot comprehend. How unsearchable, unfathomable are his judgments and unknowingable, unknowing his ways. Then he asks three rhetorical questions. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Nobody. Who has, been, who has ever counseled God? Nobody. Who has ever given to him something that had to be paid back? Who's loaned anything to God? Nobody. He owns it all. He owns you. He owns the chair you sit in. For of him and to him are all things to whom be glory. And then the next words are, I beseech you therefore, brethren. 
The relationship that I have with God is directly connected to the sovereignty of God. I know that the word therefore in chapter 12 verse 1 is a word that uh, uh, can be applied to the entire uh, first 11 chapters of the book of Romans. But you cannot excuse the immediate context either. And so he is saying that the reason I can give my life, my body, a living sacrifice to God is because he's in charge and he never makes any mistakes. So what does he say to begin with? We need to understand that a new life is the primary evidence of having a credible dealing with God. If any of us are going to have credible dealings with God, the, the, the result of that is life is different. And it's never the same again. So what does he tell us? In chapter 5, verse 8, he tells us God makes seasonal changes. The Pleiades and the Orion, the farmers in this day in the middle of the 700s B.C., they looked to the constellations to determine how they should function. When spring would come, when summer would come, when the weather would get good enough to plant, and when it was time to harvest. In addition to that, they even made idols out of the constellations. Uh, these people followed the idols of the people that they lived amongst so much of the time. He says, God makes normal and natural changes. God makes normal and natural changes. See, you and I take for granted that it's going to get daylight. The sun's going to come up. You and I take for granted that uh, the fact is, is that uh, uh, it's going to get dark at night and we can go to sleep. Lots of things we take for granted. What he's telling us here is that we should not take those things for granted. God does those things. God determines when it's going to get daylight and when it's going to get dark. Uh, he decides. He determines the daily cycles. Instead of taking them for granted, we ought to look to God and say, thank you, God, for what you do. He makes occasional changes in chapter 5, verse 8, uh, the latter part of the verse. He makes occasional changes when the sea rises up and inundates the land. He makes those changes. Sometimes they are catastrophic. Sometimes they destroy millions of dollars worth of property. And God is even in charge of those unexpected sea land issues, catastrophic occurrences. And I love the way that in the end of chapter 8, he says the Lord is his name. Yahweh is his name. We will come back to that. But he's declaring not only the uniqueness of God for Israel, but the only God for Israel. And then he says God makes historical changes. He says God is the one who makes the changes when, uh, when people go to war 
Fortresses fall in verse 9. Victory in battle is determined by God. And many times that determines what real estate is going to look like. What the land is going to look like. Who's going to be in charge. What nation looks like what. Those things are determined by God. uh, The God of the universe. To bring judgment down upon the strong and the fortress. See. Your entire life's history was written before you were ever born. Let me give you a little more information. Um, God is sovereign over circumstances. You remember that in uh, Genesis chapter 50, the, the, the brothers of uh, Jacob are coming to him, and uh, I'm sorry, Joseph are coming to him and they want food. And uh, Joseph says this, as for you, you meant this to be evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that the people should uh, be kept alive and not starve to death to this day. God knew how he was gonna feed Israel during the time of, uh, of famine because he allowed Joseph to be sold into slavery into Egypt. He was in charge of that. He's in charge. He's sovereign over past and future. Uh, In Isaiah 46, verse 10, God says, I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand. I will do all that I please. God is in charge, and he will do what he wants to do. Listen, God is in charge of circumstances. God is in charge of the past and the future. And if you're like me, you may have been through some pretty terrible circumstances earlier in your life. And uh, you may want to become very bitter and angry. But when you stop to think, God was in charge of all of that. He knew what he was doing. He knew where he wanted to take you. He knew where he wanted to grow you. When it comes to circumstances and our past, we should not be asking God, why me or why? We should be asking God, What now? What do you want? How do you want to grow me? Let me look at this from your point of view, God, not from my point of view. He is also sovereign over decisions. In Psalm 33, we read, The Lord brings the counsel of nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of people. He he does these things, and uh, he's in charge of these things. He's in charge. He's sovereign over the heart. In Proverbs 21, verse 1, we read, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it whichever way he wants it to go. You know, there have been times in our lives as a, as a couple, uh, and by the way, today we're married 21,500 and uh, 24 days. And so um, 
If you figure that out by June 20th, uh, next month, it will be 59 years. And we have gone to God and asked him sometimes what he wants us to do and how we should do this and how we should do that. And I go into those times with my mind made up. But when I come out of those times, God leads me a completely different direction. So this is the trans, uh, the transformer, the God who is in charge of everything. Now, you may not like the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. I'm sorry about that. The Bible teaches it. Please know, I'm not asking you to understand it. I'm asking you to accept it. There's a difference. I wouldn't ask you how one uh, to understand how one member of the Trinity could come to earth and die on a cross and raise again from the dead, I'm only asking you to believe it. That's the only way you can have eternal life is to understand and believe, believe, not understand, that Jesus came to earth, died on the cross. So as a sacrifice, as a substitute for you and me, and that in so doing, then he rose from the dead. And I can, by believing that, can have eternal life. See, the Bible never says, if you understand it, you can get saved. So I'm not asking you to understand the sovereignty of God. Books have been written on this. Theologians have talked it to death. And in most instances, when they solve the problem, what they do is they eliminate either the sovereignty of God or the free will of man in the process. And uh, God is saying to us, I'm in charge. That's the first thing. So when you come to Bethel, so when you come to Bethel, the first thing you have to understand is that the God who is in this room is in charge. And he makes all these decisions and uh, he wants you and I to submit to that sovereignty and that authority. So let's look at the transgressors now. And uh, you see this in, uh, uh, I've given you verse 7, verses 10 and 11. We've already read them. Let me talk a little bit about wormwood. In verse 7, he says, for those who turn justice into wormwood. Wormwood was a, uh, uh, a plant from the Astor family it had a very bitter taste to it. And many times in scripture, it is used as a metaphor for uh, a bitterness and, and injustice and wrongs being done. And so wormwood becomes a metaphor for injustice. They have turned justice into wormwood, bitterness, and cast righteousness down to the earth. And then he says... There is partiality in the court. There is partiality in the court. That's when he says, they hate him who reproves at the gate. Now, at this time in the history of Israel, the gate was where all civil and criminal uh, uh, courts took place. And the elders at the gate were the ones who, who made the decisions on these things. And these people who are at the gate uh, uh, are, have gone astray. They, uh, they reprove in the gate 
and they abhor him who speaks with integrity. They don't want witnesses in these courts. They don't want anybody to come and tell the truth. The last thing they want is somebody to tell the truth. They don't want people to get up and say, actually, what happened? Truth becomes distant from these people. They don't want the truth going on. You might be interested to know that Augustine, many years ago, said this, when regard for truth has been broken down and even slightly weakened, all things remain doubtful. When there's no truth, then there's nothing you know for sure. Everything is doubtful. A.W. Tozer said this, the unattended garden will soon be overrun with weeds. The heart that fails to cultivate truth and root out error will shortly be a theological wilderness. Let me read it again. The unattended garden will soon be overrun with weeds and the heart that fails to cultivate truth and root out error will shortly be a theological wilderness. You can't find truth today. You can't get it from the government. You can't get it from the politicians. You can't get it from advertising. You can't even get it from many preachers. Truth is a hard thing to come by. And whenever you are going to do away with truth, you are making life very perilous. Nothing can be for certain. Then he says, he turns from the concept of truth to the concept of people. And he turns to the poor. And he says this about the poor in verse 11. Therefore, uh, uh, he says that they, uh, they impose heavy rent on the poor and extract tribute of gain from them. And uh, so they pilfer. There's a pilfering of the poor going on here. And uh, they want tribute. They want taxes. They milk and uh, exploit the poor. And uh, when they do that, they, they recognize that they've not been changed at Bethel. They've not been changed at Gilgal or Beersheba. They go there, but they only go through the motions. It's all it is is a bank holiday. Nothing happens when they go there. And finally, their pleasures for themselves First, their partiality in the court, then the pilfering of the poor, now the pleasuring of themselves. They build houses out of fine-hewn stone. In this day, a house was normally built out of uh, mud and dirt and sod. These guys built houses out of uh, a finely uh, well-hewn stone and uh, and the prophet says, you won't live in them. They planted wonderful vineyards. And in fact, the word pleasant is given to us in the text. Pleasant vineyards. And they won't drink their wine. It's sort of like Jesus in chapter 7. 
verses 21 to 23, he said, they come to me, they call me Lord, Lord. They prophesy in my name. They do miracles in my name. But I will say, get away from me. I never knew you. Because they go to Bethel and they don't get changed. So then let's look at the transaction that has to take place. Um, the transaction is between God and the people. And um, there is a conversion required. And let me give you two phrases. At the beginning of verse 14, he says, seek good, not evil. It's as though Amos says that, and then he rethinks it. And he changes his mind. And he comes in 15 and says, hate evil, love good. You see what he's doing there? He's taking it out of the doing into the heart. He's taking it out of the uh, actual function into what you are inside. You have to start living your life from what's in here, not what you're commanded to do out here. It would be an easy thing to say, uh, as he says here, to uh, hate good, uh, seek good and hate evil. I could say, I seek good and I hate evil, but only when you look at me and see the way I function out of the inside out will you know whether that is really true or not. Jesus does exactly the same thing in the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount the Sermon on the Mount is the most concise statement of Christian living found in any one place. And it's all about living life inside out. And so uh, that's what he's talking about here. He says there's a conversion required and that conversion has to be around the concept of living your life from who you are on the inside, not just what you do on the outside. See, I think um, we have come to a place where complacency has become the Christian keyword these days. Someone said recently one of their major concerns is nominal Christianity. Uh, I found this statement on complacency many years ago. I used to get a publication called Bits and Pieces, and it was in there. I want to read it for you. Complacency is a blight that saps energy, dulls attitudes, and causes a drain on the brain. The first symptom is satisfaction with things as they are. The second symptom is a rejection of things as they might be. Good enough becomes today's watchword and tomorrow's standard. Complacency makes people fear the unknown, mistrust the untried, and abhor the new. Like water, complacent people flow the easiest course downhill. They draw false strength from looking back. We cannot become complacent in our world today. Let me look at a verse here in this text. 
verse 13. You see what it says? Therefore, at such a time, the prudent person. What's a prudent person? He's a guy who doesn't want to get in trouble. He's a guy who doesn't want to go against the grain. The prudent person keeps silent. For it is an evil time. I believe we are coming to a time in history where the church is no longer going to be able to keep silent. We are going to have to speak truth. So there is the compassion then that is returned by God in verse 14b, 14, uh, 15b. That's where he says, first of all, seek good and not evil. Hate evil, love good. Take it to the inside. Obey and you will live, in other words. Gracious remnant, uh, God will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph, he tells us. You will survive and live better daily lives. I want you to see something that is very important. It doesn't appear almost any place else. If you look in verse 14, you see, seek good, not evil, that you may live. For thus may the Lord of hosts. Now the first word is Yahweh. Yahweh was a non-pronounceable word until sometime in the third century when vowels were added. It was spelled Y-H-W-H. You couldn't pronounce it. Israel would not say that word. That's why in the book of Matthew, written to Jews, he won't say the kingdom of God. He calls it the kingdom of heaven because he doesn't want to offend Jews by using the word uh, for God. So they wouldn't use this word. It means to exist. It means I am. It's the word that was given to Moses when he said, who shall I say sent me? And God says, you tell him I am sent you, Yahweh. The second word is Elohim, Yahweh Elohim, and the third word is Sabaoth. Sabaoth is a Hebrew word which means army. And when you read uh, Lord God of hosts, it's referring to God being in charge of the armies of angels in heaven. It is often translated heavenly hosts. So God is in charge of all these armies. You see that in verse 14. You see it in verse 15. Hate evil, love good, establish justice in the gate. Perhaps the Lord God of hosts, Yahweh Elohim Sabaoth. And then you come to 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, the Lord, Yahweh Elohim Sabaoth, Adonai. He's put every name of God there is possible to be put in there. And God is, uh, Amos is saying to us once again, you, you, you got to make sure you know who's in charge. God is the one who's in charge. And God is the one who wants you to walk with him. Let me sit down for just a minute. Sometimes us old guys have to do that. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, wait a minute, Hagenbaugh. 
I've been a Christian for 50 years, and you have no idea what kind of change has taken place in me. And I can relate to that. For me, it's 61 years. And, um, but what I want to say to you today is when you come to Bethel, something's got to happen. When you come to Bethel, some change has to take place. Years ago, uh, Dallas Willard wrote a book entitled The Divine Conspiracy. I'm sure many of you have read it. It was published in 1998, uh, which seems a long time ago now. In that book, he says this, can we believe that the essence of Christian faith is salvation covers nothing but death and after? Can we believe that being saved really has nothing whatever to do with the kinds of people we are? Have we somehow developed an understanding of commitment to Jesus Christ that does not break through his living presence in our lives? Are we to suppose that God gives us nothing that really influences character and spirituality? Listen to this next statement. Justification and sanctification are inseparable doctrines. Justification and sanctification are inseparable doctrines. Yet going Ongoing transformation is frequently absent in the lives of those who profess faith in Christ. I would suggest a couple of things to you. First of all, when you come to Bethel, before you come, make a plan. Come with a purpose. Maybe your plan is going to be to to shake the hands of four people. And maybe you're going to pick them. Maybe they need encouragement. Uh, but maybe your plan is going to be to stand and worship God in reverence and let the words speak to your life. Maybe your plan is going to say, okay, I'm going to look for something that God wants me to do today. I'm going to look for something that God wants me to believe today. I'm going to look for something that God wants to change in me today. That's the first thing. Make a plan. The second thing when you come to Bethel, when you get in the car and you start talking about the, 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 the church and, and you start talking about the preacher, uh, that's okay. We don't mind that. Um, start asking each other, what did you learn today? What, what's God going to do with you today and for you? And when we come to Bethel, let's make sure there's a change in our lives. And when you go out to school and to the workplace and to the family, let those people See Jesus in you because Christianity must take us there. Let's pray together. Father, thank you today.
for the prophet Amos. It's hard to grasp everything that he says. And some of it, Father, frankly, it's hard to understand. But we want, Father, to be people who belong to you every minute of every day. We want to be people, Father, who are in love with Jesus, in love with good, and hate evil. We want to be people who stand out. And I know, I know, that could become uncomfortable. So, Father, use us in our homes, in our workplaces, in our schools, and in our culture. And we will give you the praise for it, Father, in the sweet name of our Redeemer, Jesus. Amen.